This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson. And uh, unfortunately, Marty is not here with me today, uh, but Marty is being a really good husband. Unfortunately, his wife, Kaylin, uh, has recently come down with COVID. And so Marty is taking care of her. And he was super upset that he couldn't be here. He really wanted to, to hang out with our guest today. Uh, but I told Marty that I would be upset with him if he didn't take care of his wife. Uh, because family always comes first. And so, uh, Marty, we miss you, but also we are praying for Kaylin uh, that she recovers uh, quickly and doesn't have any you know, crazy complications. But uh, as I was saying, we do have a, a guest with us this morning, or I have a guest, I should say. And for listeners who've been hanging around for a little bit, if you go back all the way to episode 55, uh, then this individual was with us then. And it's a, a gentleman that uh, probably most of you are familiar with, and that is Brian McLaren. Brian, how are you this afternoon? Well, I'm doing fantastic. So glad to be with you. Sorry to hear about Kaylin and glad that Marty is uh, is doing everything he can to help her. Uh, yes. Time. And can I just say, great to be with you again. You guys are doing a great job. I was looking over the list of guests you've had lately. What a great bunch of people and what important <laughs> conversations you're hosting. So glad to be with you. Awesome. Well, thank you again uh, so much, for, uh, Brian, for taking some time in and hanging out today. Uh, just for starters, real quick, though, we've been asking a question of our guest more recently um, not the hockey question that we asked you that we asked you that last time, but more specifically in regards to the podcast, we've really wanted to know uh, from our guest what is perhaps the most important aspect of your faith that you personally had to rethink. Mm. Well, I, I'm sure the most the the, the most vexing was mm. what do I do with the Bible? Um, 
but I'd say the most important is even deeper than that. And that is, it, what is faith? Is faith just about a list of beliefs or is faith a, a way of orienting ourselves toward life's mystery and meaning and so on? So uh, the, put those two together. That, that's how I'd start, I think. Awesome. Yeah, well, thank you. And so that's perfect too. That'll, that'll tie in nicely uh, for what we wanted to, to talk about today, which is uh, your latest book. So as of this recording, I believe it comes out tomorrow, <laughs> that's right? right. Yeah. yeah. Are you excited? You feeling good about it? Oh, I feel so good about it. And you know, a couple of people got it early, Amazon shipped it early, and I've gotten some of the nicest notes I've ever gotten about a book already, even before it's released. So super encouraged. Yeah, yeah Brian, seriously, this uh, book was absolutely wonderful. Okay. <laughs> I loved it. And I seriously, I genuinely believe that like, um, your book, if we could get like every pastor in America to read it, that would be so helpful. <laughs> like, that would be huge. That would be huge. Um, but before we talk about that, I wanted to share something that'll kind of actually set up the conversation nicely. Um, and it's an it's an embarrassing story about myself. Is that okay? Um, so, as we mentioned before, we had you on the the show a, a little over a year ago, and over the summer, I actually I wrote a brief reflection about that experience. Um, do you mind if I share it with you real quick? Oh, fine. Cool. All right. So here we go. I once had a conversation with Brian McLaren. Off to a good start. During that conversation, I naively stated that at the ripe old age of 24, I had entered into my second half of life. I pontificated about the struggles of the second half of life and the heartache that it had brought me. But again, in my ripe old wisdom, I confidently stated that if I had the opportunity to return to Egypt, I would not. Congratulations, Josh, you have arrived. <laughs> Luckily for me and my obviously fragile ego, Brian was ever so kind and did not correct me in my arrogance. Instead, he responded with a warm smile, the kind of smile that only comes from the second half of life, the kind of smile that is fueled by wisdom, kindness, and most importantly, love. See, Brian understands the journey of becoming. Brian understands something that I am just now beginning to pick up on. Life itself is a journey of becoming. But the problem is I had thought that I had already arrived. I had life and faith all figured out. I broke free from the tyranny of fundamentalism only to arrive on the other side of the same coin. This side just happened to be labeled progressive. What I, what I now realize that we are called human beings for a reason. Far too often, however, we are simply humans doing. I now realize that life is a journey of becoming. And sadly, we have often live as if life is just a journey of arriving. I used to think that if only I could ascend to the top of the mountain, then my life would have both meaning and joy. And now I realize that I don't need to climb the mountain to find joy or meaning, that there are plenty of things right here and right now to bring both joy and meaning, if only I have the eyes to see. And at one point, I thought, I thought it true that ideological claims and systems of belief were the deepest forms of knowing. I used to think that true faith was being certain about a set of propositions that made up my ideological system of how the world works. 
but I now realize that there is a deeper form of knowing that can only come from the experience of ultimate reality. True faith, true knowing is not found in the head, but rather in the heart. Hmm. And so I wrote that reflection over the summer. And this morning, as I was putting together this interview, I remembered it. And so I wanted to go back and, and pull it out and share that with you because I thought it was a good grounds for our, our conversation today. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So much, so much beautiful stuff there. Uh, so much beautiful stuff, Josh. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Yes, absolutely, Brian. Um, well, let's talk about your work then. Uh, faith after doubt. That's a pretty pretty big thing to, to tackle. So what uh, drove you, what led you to, to decide to uh, write this book? Well, I suppose, uh, obviously I didn't know it, but exactly the kind of thing you just wrote in that uh, blog post, uh, uh, really, this sense that so many of us were caught in this, this uh, you know, well, I don't know what to call it, a, a machine where we had to arrive and, dis- and ascend and reach the top and have all the right beliefs and get our systems connect correct and, uh, and, and, you know, be so right, so right, so right. Um, and the sense that for so many people, that's just falling apart. The, even if they feel they get to the top, it, it feels terrible. Um, or maybe it doesn't feel terrible for them, but everybody around them <laughs> feels, <laughs> feels it's not so great. Um, but so many people just, eventually it just feels impossible. They, and, and in fact, they realize they, they can't be right, but they can pretend they're right or act like they're right. And when that happens, everything goes sour. So um, I love those, that little phrase you said, right here, right now. That when, when we say, look, life has to start making sense. And I have, to, I have to start living in a way that makes sense right here and right now. So all of that's behind the writing of the book. But uh, I guess one more kind of practical reality is this. Uh, as you know, Josh, I was a pastor for 24 years, and we had so many people who had come to our church, and our church had kind of a reputation of being a place where you could be honest. And so many people would come and say, look, I'm not a Christian, or I used to be a Christian, or I grew up Pentecostal, or I grew up Catholic. I don't know what I believe anymore, but I've got a bunch of questions. And so they would come to me with their questions. And that helped me know that behind the facade, a whole lot of people, this thing isn't working. And, and then to intensify that, uh, they, I, I would often catch their questions. In other words, I'd give them my best answer, and I'd think, but your question is better than my answer. Um, so that then becomes my own, you know, my own struggle as a human being trying to figure this out. Even though I was a pastor, I was still a human being <laughs> and I was still a Christian trying to search and, and seek for, for truth. But in the years since I left the pastorate, I just have anywhere from a trickle to a tsunami of emails and social media posts coming in from people who say this isn't working um, I need help. And, and so that's really what, uh, you know, that was the need that I, I was responding to in this book. Yeah, sure. I, and I think that's, I mean, that's right on the head, especially to even just working with uh, the high school and, and young adults that I do at work. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a full-time high school and young adult pastor and their, their questions are this, are their experiences exactly what you're describing. 
Yeah. Can I just say, um, yeah. Josh, and did you say you're 24 or you were oh, 24 when you were at that? Yeah. So I'm 26 currently. 26. Yes, okay. sir. So you just think even for you to, to have that kind of insight about your own spiritual growth and development and your own rethinking of your faith at the age of 26. And then for you to say, and you have 16 year olds and 17 year olds who are asking similar questions. I think this is something we're going to have to face that, that so many of the people in charge don't even understand the questions, uh, much less have answers or or they'll respond to the questions without any depth of, of empathy because they've never really grappled with them themselves. And things are going to be different going forward. And that's why we need a kind of faith that's not afraid of questions and doubt and critical thinking. Uh, so uh, I, your, your experience just uh, resonates with what, what inspired this book. Yeah, that's, that's so beautiful, Brian. And since you mentioned it, the, the, um, chapter that you did specifically um, about young people, you know, the upcoming generations. uh, I was like, wow, this is the chapter on student ministry that I wish I had forever ago. Uh, It was so beautiful and and wonderfully written. And you actually captured, there's a a sentence that just literally jumped off the page at me. And I was like, oh my goodness, like Brian just nailed the thing that I've not been able to put into words or understand. And you said the the this is the crisis in religion today, not that children fall short of their parents' faith, but that they grow beyond it. Mm-hmm. And that a hundred percent lines up uh, with experience with the students that I, that I work with, the kind of questions they're asking. So that, that chapter for me personally just was so helpful um, and kind of helped give me some uh, hope in what I'm doing. Uh, some maybe some new and exciting directions to explore. Uh, you know, uh, Josh, as you say that, it reminds me of something one of my mentors said many years ago. Uh, I, w- I just had young children and his children were, uh, you know, leaving the nest, so to speak. And he said, Brian, remember this. He said, for, he said, um, for about 18 years, you raise your children. And then for the rest of your life, they raise you. <laughs> but, but there's a sense that if you succeed as a parent, you bring them to where you are. Um, but that's the problem is if the parent has stopped growing or if the parent's church has told them there's nowhere else to go, then where do the kids go? Because they want to keep growing. And uh, so th- this, this understanding that, that, well, you know, if I can quote one of the early church fathers, um, Gregory of Nyssa, he got in trouble with some of his fellow bishops uh, because he disagreed on the definition of perfection. And he said, perfection is not a rival. He said, perfection is infinite progression. Isn't that great? Infinite growth. Yeah, that's wonderful. I love that. I'll have to uh, write that down and take a note of it for myself. I love it. <laughs> um, so something too that I <clears throat> I was thinking about with all of this and, and when reading your book, I wondered if there was any connection between what you did in this book and also the, the ebook that you put out in the podcast series that you published, uh, why don't they get it? Yes. I'm in my mind. I can see how the faith and doubt and then all the different kinds of like uh, the neuroscience and the different um, biases and all that kind of stuff, they would kind of overlap. Was there any connection yeah. between those two? 
Yeah, there really, there really was. And, and I, I should say, Josh, um, so I wrote Faith After Doubt. That's coming out now. And right now I'm writing the companion book to it because um, there's this, there'll be kind of a pair of books. And the companion book is called uh, Do I Stay Christian? And what's been so great is the process of writing the first book has really prepared me to work on the second book. Um, but uh, in, as I'm grappling with, as I grappled with the issue of faith and doubt in, in, in that book, what became clearer to me than ever had before are two things you just mentioned. One is the brain science. What, what's happening in our brains when we have faith and say we have faith and when we have doubt? And then that brain science connects with the social dimensions of doubt that doubt isn't just an intellectual individual phenomenon. It, it, it raises issues of the groups, the groups that we cherish, that we belong to that might no longer have room for us. If we were to question one of the boundary marking beliefs, you know, and, um, and that, that those social dimensions plus the almost biological and brain-based dimensions of doubt really helped me understand why so many people just throw the whole thing away and say, I want nothing to do with, you know, with Christianity if they're Christian. Interesting, someone just sent me a link to an article of a leading politician in Israel, Jewish uh, leader in Israel, who has said he wants to renounce his Judaism. Um, and so you realize this isn't just a problem in Christianity. I've met Muslims who've renounced their Islamic faith and and Jews and and Christians as well. So th this is this is something that's happening on many many levels and in many communities. Yeah, yeah. And you, I loved when you talked about that in the book because you you talked about doubt as as a human problem, yeah. <laughs> like it's a thing, it's it's a people thing. And yeah. for whatever reason, I it sounds silly to say it out loud, but I never thought about oh. I wonder if, you know, Muslims or, or Jews or Hindus or whoever, if they also experience the same kind of uh, process of doubt or, or, you know, deconstruction, reconstruction, whatever language you want to use, um, if that's a thing that happens everywhere or if that's just Christianity. And I was like, well, duh, I guess it's going to have to happen everywhere. <laughs> so, if it is a human problem, it's, it's happening. You know, there, there's a 17-year-old kid raised atheist who's having doubts about his atheism. Oh, and, interesting. And in some ways, the dynamics of that, will I be in trouble with my parents? Will, you know, mm. will, will my friends reject me um, if I were to become some sort of a believer in, in some sort of God, you know? Uh, I mean, the, the, the social and psychological dimensions of it are, are so similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And um, <clears throat> some of the, the the social implications that you talked about that I thought were really helpful, um, especially just from from my experience and also from the experience of of talking to others, is that a lot of the times when it comes to these experiences of doubt, we feel doubt as a sense of loss. Mm -hmm. uh, we feel doubt as a sense of loneliness. Yes. And then eventually it begins to to isolate, and then you're like in a full blown crisis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, uh, it, it's when you talk about loss and loneliness, it, it, it leads to an identity crisis. Who am I? I've understood myself as a Christian. My parents understand me as a Christian, my siblings, my spouse, my children, my you know, social circle. What if I lose faith? What will that mean? What will happen? 
um, you know, uh, somebody uh, wrote a book some years ago called The Least, something like The Least You Have to Believe to Be a Christian. And it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, people start negotiating. Well, maybe I'll drop this, but I better hold on tighter to that because if I lose that, I will lose my, my sense of belonging. And if I lose that, I lose my sense of identity. I don't even know who I am anymore. Mm. And it's hard. That's why this is so hard and so serious. And that's why I hope, you know, it's asking a lot to ask people to read. I forget how many pages are in the book, but, you know, <laughs> a couple hundred pages. Yeah. Ask, ask somebody to, to read something like that or invite somebody to read something like that. Unless it's a real problem, they're, they're not going to do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me personally, just how I, I experienced the book um, was it was very much a page turner because you captured my experience mm. and uh, specifically, and we can uh, talk about these so people know what we're talking about. But for me um, in my current, like the last time we spoke, uh, definitely I tended to fall more within the realm of perplexity. Um, I've been honest with listeners more recently and said that the reason I started this podcast is because I wanted to tear things down. Um, because I was angry, I was hurt. I'd experienced extremely toxic church cultures. Um, that kind of, I already started asking some questions before I started working in a church. And as soon as I entered this church, I mean, it was like an accelerator. Yeah. And that was during my time in Florida. Um, and more recently, uh, within the past eight months, uh, the complexity bit, or the, sorry, perplexity, something just started to feel off. Um, I just, I didn't really care anymore. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm tired of this. Uh, something uh, like, is, is there anything? Is, you know, what's going on? And I joined this, uh, I was asked to join this group called Jesus Collective. And they're wonderful. They're, they're worth checking out. Um, but there I was assigned a spiritual director hmm. and in spiritual direction, uh, it came out that I, I, how I was talking about it was there was like a sense of myself and I, an identity that was uh, shedding, that was dying is, is yeah. the language I was using. Um, and as I was reading through your book, basically what I, what I am seeing is there's the, the slow process of uh, entering harmony which is scary. Uh, it's dark. <laughs> you know, the Ignatian uh, spirituality with consolation and desolation um, has been very close to me recently. Uh, the dark night of the soul, all these kind of things were just captured perfectly. And so for me, it was just a page turner. I was like, oh my goodness, that Brian reads my journal. Like this is, <laughs> this is crazy. So, so helpful. Well, that's encouraging to hear. And I, I think that's probably encouraging for all the listeners to hear as well, because so many of us think I'm the only one struggling with this. I must mm -hmm. be the only one. What's wrong with me? And one of the great reliefs comes when we say, no, it's not that I'm the only one. And if I have the courage to admit it and speak it, speak it out, maybe I'm, I'm not rare in my experience. I'm just rare in the courage to acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. or in the need to acknowledge it. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I, and you imagine when more and more people find out they're not the only one, that will open up really exciting possibilities, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, that tends to be one of the, the ways that I'm grieved the most, you know, when you see these various 
uh, quotes famous, you know, Christian people, like whether they were worship leaders or pastors or whatever, uh, you know, band leaders coming out on Twitter saying, oh, I'm, you know, losing my, or I've lost my faith because I have this question and no one, no one will talk about it. And what pains me, it's like, no, people are talking about this. You just haven't been afforded the opportunity to see it. And it grieves me so deeply. Well, that's one of the great things about podcasts like yours. I I really mean this. You know, I I often say that what, you know, Martin Luther's Wittenberg door was (laughs) for the first Reformation, I think podcasts are now because they're an easy entry point for people to be in the privacy of, you know, their, 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 running and listening to a podcast while they take their morning jog. And in the privacy of that space, they're able to know I'm not alone. I'm not the only mm-hmm. one. Wow. There, there are at least two of us or at least three of us. And, and that creates possibility because as you, you know, I wrote about this in the book, but we really are herd creatures. We humans, mm-hmm. we, we really are social creatures and to do anything in complete isolation is pretty terrifying to us. And we're just not, we're just not built for it. And there, and the good news about that is that when we begin to grow, because we have to be social creatures about it, that growth can become contagious too, I I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's been my experience a hundred percent. Yeah. And I mean, things like, just like you're saying, I mean, podcast was for me, especially when I was in that, that first church, I was, I mentioned to you that the really toxic culture. I stumbled uh, upon a podcast at the time called the Bad Christian Podcast. I don't, yes, yeah. I don't know if you know those guys. Yeah. Um, and they were still very much at a stage in that podcast where they were breaking down their experience at Mars Hill. And, yeah. and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm not crazy. Like, because my yeah. wife was telling me, Josh, churches shouldn't be like this. Like you should yeah. not be being treated this way. And I was like, no, that's just how it is. We don't know. And my wife was right, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> but that, yeah, that the podcast, it's so helpful. And um, I mean, still personally, I listened to uh, one called uh, You Have Permission, which my buddy Dan Koch puts on. And that's a beautiful podcast. Wonderful. Um, that That's so helpful for myself. Um, one, one other, another thing that I think was, was very helpful um, in the book is that you made a distinction between faith and belief. Yeah. Uh, and I was excited because as I, I remembered reading that. And then this morning I was reading, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Alan Watts, but I was reading the wisdom of insecurity and uh, Alan uh, has some similar comments to make about doubt and faith or uh, faith and, and belief. And so um, can you share a little bit about that? What, what is the difference between faith and belief and why does that matter? Sure. Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, Alan Watts is one of the people who I think articulates this better than anybody else. And mm. uh, at one point in the book, I just quote him briefly, where he says something like this. Um, he says, uh, faith is, the wind, is a window through which we look out in the world. We look out at the world. Um, and in a sense, faith can become a way we try to take seriously the world as it is. And imagine how the world could be. But here's what he says. He says, but if we decide that we want the world to be the way we wish it were instead of the way it really were, what we might do is 
paint a blue sky over the window. So it always tells us what we want to hear. And in a sense, beliefs become ways that we're tempted to lie to ourselves or tell ourselves things are true that we have no way of knowing that they're true. Um, and, and so that to me is a, a insightful way to look at beliefs from Alan Watts's perspective. And then he says that faith is an unreserved openness to the truth. I want to know the truth, whatever it is. It's a way that we posture ourselves towards truth and mystery. And some people might say, well, that doesn't sound like much. Well, listen, imagine if somebody said, I posture myself to say, I am not open to anything I do not currently understand. Well, suddenly I'm in a very small box. So faith is what keeps us open to things that could even contradict what I currently think. And it's a way that I'm able to continue to say, I don't know, I'm seeking, here's what I found out so far, but there might be more that I don't know. And that kind of humility, I think, is, is an, essential, uh, an essential part of faith. Yeah, the I mean, huh, humility is is I think the key. Like that's huge, um, and uh, something that just randomly came to mind. And perhaps it's a slightly inappropriate example, but I think you'll appreciate it. Uh, thinking <laughs> <laughs> thinking about the the window, because actually I read that that bit this morning, and yeah. I was like, ah, oh, this is we have to bring this in. Um, but there is a certain individual who very much believes. Uh, that there was an election that was stolen from them. Yeah, um, pretty and, bad individual, yeah. Yeah, and he has been painting his window uh, yes. very much and having other people look through his painted window, uh, which, you know, of course, when you look through the window and it's painted in the way that that yeah. he wants to believe, it's going to look that way regardless of the reality. And I think that is another just, that's a good real life application that's not, religion based, but it shows people do this all the time. Well, you, you mentioned, I, I wrote this short ebook on, uh, on bias and biases are the ways that we paint our windows or that we don't let our, see, uh, we don't let ourselves see things uh, that we don't want to see, right. Or that we're not ready to see. Uh, I also wrote a short ebook on authoritarianism. It's called the second pandemic. And, and bias and authoritarianism work together in, in a lot of interesting and scary ways. If, if there's a leader who boldly and loudly with great confidence and even pretended certainty tells you what you want to hear, you're willing to give up an awful lot to be around that leader. Even more if the leader is a billionaire and might give you a contract and money. And if that leader could pass policies that could do things for you. So we are all susceptible to being bought off by leaders and con artists who tell us what we want to hear. Uh, it's one of the reasons why spiritual direction is so important, because that's where we try, to, we try to have some space where in the company of a gifted and caring person, we say, where am I, where am I just following whoever tells me what I want to hear? And what is the deeper desire than, than even that, those surface things that could distract me and, and get me into trouble? So uh, it's, um, uh, th these are deeply important matters. And they aren't just religious. As you say, they're political, they're economic. Th they, they work in a thousand different ways. Yeah, and the, um, the, you know, 
tip of the hat there to spiritual direction that, and I mean this wholeheartedly when I say it, if I didn't start spiritual direction about eight months ago when I did, I would not be working in a church right now. And I probably wouldn't be calling myself a Jesus follower. (laughs) Or maybe I would say, oh, I like that Jesus guy, but everything else has to be done. Um, Spiritual direction has been the best investment I have ever taken in my life, ever, period, hands down. <laughs> wow, that's, that's saying a lot. And a lot of us have found that to be true. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, and I've I given her shout outs before, but her name is Sid Holsklaw and she is wonderful. Um, so shout out to Sid, if you're listening, Sid, thank you <laughs> for what you do. Um, and so with, I guess this ties with, with spiritual direction to an extent, um, everybody kind of goes through this uh journey of faith or faith development, and you have your, you know, your helpful four-stage framework, and we mentioned uh, some of those ideas briefly, but could you just give us like a quick um, overview of of those four stages? Yeah, that'd be great. Sure. So, the first thing I always want to say is that any description of stages is just an observation of patterns, and it's not a rule. We're not telling anybody this has to work for you, but it's a pattern that a lot of us have observed. I, I put this together, synthesizing the work of a a lot of interesting uh, and brilliant theorists. But um, I I talk about four stages. Simplicity, which is the stage of dualism. We fit everything into categories of us, them, in, out, right, wrong, good, bad, safe, dangerous, uh, uh, that sort of thing. Um, uh, That is followed for some people by complexity, where those simple, easy dualisms start breaking down and where we say, you know what, the world doesn't just fit into categories of black and white. There are many shades of gray and there might even be other colors too. Um, and, and so this stage of complexity, uh, we, we just want to encounter life and we want to become successful in, in dealing with it, understanding it, dealing with, dealing with it. Um, uh, then some of us reach a stage where even that the pragmatism of stage two uh, leaves us, wanting. And, and then we're attracted, then we're, we're propelled into perplexity, where uh, in some ways we give up dualism and pragmatism, and we embrace relativism, and where skepticism becomes a really important tool for us, because we realize how many frauds and facades are out there, and we have to try to see past the curtain to see what's really going on. And some people, that's where they stay their whole lives. But then um, I think more and more people at a younger and younger age are moving into this fourth stage that I call harmony, where we integrate the lessons we've learned of the first three stages. And we, in a sense, both, we, we, we are able to move beyond them to start to see things as whole and interrelated, to understand how connected we are. And, um, you know, now for me, it's very obvious uh, that that's what, scripture is about. And that's what Jesus was about. I mean, trying to help people, for example, see that if you're Jewish and you hate Samaritans, actually the Samaritan is your neighbor. You should love your Samaritan neighbor. And if you're Samaritan and you hate Jews, hey, your your Jewish uh, neighbor is your neighbor and you're connected. And so, uh, you know, you start to see, oh, this is what was there all, all along, but we've done a good job of, of kind of missing the main point. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, that for me, again, that's, that's been so much of my experience. I remember um, when I first started encountering uh, the works of one of uh, your buddies, Richard Rohr, 
uh, who is, I mean, Richard's wonderful. Um, I remember first being engaged with his work because other people were like, yeah, Richard Rory should check this out. It, it might be helpful. And when I first started reading Richard's work, um, I, there was like, like an anticipation and an excitement that I had, but also a lot of confusion. I didn't quite understand. And uh, slowly, as I engaged with more of his work and then read some other people like him and then started spiritual direction and then started engaging in, uh, you know, a more contemplative uh, form of, of my faith, I started, it started to make sense. It started to click and, and to understand. Yeah. And I was just having this conversation the other day uh, with a good friend of mine. Um, he's definitely one of my mentors. His name is Jace. And I was trying to explain that to him because he read Universal Christ. And he was like, like, this is great, but also, I, no, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Jace, like, it'll come. <laughs> like, I don't know how to explain it, but there's something yeah. that happens. And then it's almost like the how I've been personally praying about it recently is I've been asking uh, God to open my eyes to the burning bushes that are surrounding me That's beautiful. Um, because they're everywhere. And it's not that they just a bush magically lights on fire, but rather that it's been there the whole time. And it's an awakening to the reality. Um, And it's, it's a beautiful thing. (laughs) It's it's been interesting to say the least. Um, And I'm just, that's the way you just described that I think is so perfect. Uh, It's not that there were these burning bushes there and you just, nobody had pointed them out to you yet. It was that you didn't yet have the capacity to see them. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem wasn't with reality. The problem was you just hadn't developed an ability to see them. And, and it's, and this is one of the problems when all we do is argue about beliefs. Is this belief right? Is that belief right? Well, what if there are things that we need to see that are bigger than those beliefs? And if we're only looking for beliefs, then we miss so many other things. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm a, I'm a fly fisherman. It's a weird passion, but I just love it. <laughs> and when you are a fly fisherman fishing in a beautiful stream for trout, when you first start, you know, trout are under the surface, maybe 12 inches, 24 inches under the surface, and they're sort of moving with the current and you just can't see them. Like I remember being at the side of a stream with friends and they're pointing, see, there's three trout right there, three trout right there. I couldn't see them. Um, but you stick with it and you gradually be, you, you learn to get the pattern of the shadow on the, on the bottom or, or disturbance in, uh, in the way the light is going through the water. Somehow you begin to see it. Hmm. And once you learn to see it, you can't not see it. It's now an ability that you have. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's, that's the difference between growing in a stage and growing from one stage to another. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of growth you do within a stage, but when you need a new capacity for seeing, then you need to grow into a new stage. Does that, mm-hmm. does that make sense? No, absolutely. I, I love that uh, metaphor. That's perfect. <laughs> that's so cool. I like that. I remember um, I've never gone fly fishing, but uh, at Messiah, now university, not college anymore. That's where I yes. went. And they had the, the yellow breaches that ran through campus. Um, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it, I haven't. And it's a world famous trout stream. I've never fished it, but it's very yep. famous. And people would fly fish it all the time. Yeah. Uh, actually, one time we got a, uh, 
<laughs> we got an alert on our phones, like everyone's phones went off and we got all these emails like, you know, shots fired on campus. It was very serious and people were freaking out. And so um, they're like, you know, had everyone lock in the, in the dorm or if you were in a classroom, whatever. And then what they found out happened was there were uh, hunters who were going on rafts through the stream and didn't realize that they entered a college campus and they were duck hunting <laughs> from their rafts. <laughs> so luckily it was nothing serious, uh, but the, the, it's, the point is it's, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And we would go and hang out there and, you know, wade into the water. It, it's, it's gorgeous. Um, sweet. All right. I derailed us. Bad Josh. All right. That's <laughs> no, good. That's good. Yeah. So, um, I guess I just want to, I want to throw one thing out there and then I have like a personal question that I want to ask you just because I'm curious, personalizing yes. for myself and then uh, we'll, we'll kind of wrap things up. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Sweet. All right. So um, a lot of the times when, when you talk about these stages, we, you know, we never want to uh, use them to like lord yourself over other people. I mean, in fact, if you do, I think you don't understand the stages. Um, there's a, a transcending and including, yes. um, and I think at times we can be in various aspects of our life or our faith or whatever, we can be in, in different stages or coexist in, in multiple spaces. Um, but a lot of the times within the stage of harmony, you end up coming back to simplicity, uh, and you realize that some of the simple things are actually some of the most profound things that there are. You just now have eyes to see it. Um, and what you put forth, uh, in your book about basically the most important thing is faith expressing itself in love. And that's a perfect example of that. Um, I feel like so many people would say and affirm that, uh, but then to actually practice that and move forward is, is a beautiful thing. And, And you lay out, you know, theologies of harmony and, and communities of harmony, um, and my nerd self is, is interested in the theology bit, but I think with, with the communities of harmony, uh, this, the communal aspect of this journey together, I kind of, I want to hit on that briefly, just because especially within the, the midst of COVID, I think something has kind of happened to our communities. Yeah. And I actually have a deeper appreciation now for something that I used to basically look down on. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, yeah. That wasn't well, much of a question, but, <laughs> well, no, but if I understand you right, you're kind of asking what could COVID be teaching faith communities at this mm-hmm. time? And, and yeah. one of the interesting things it teaches us is what we were talking about a few minutes ago. And that is that we're all connected. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be, you know, a multi, multi, multi-millionaire with the top state of the art uh, healthcare program. And you realize that if the person who cleans your house or cuts your lawn or cuts your hair is poor and doesn't have a good healthcare program uh, and they get COVID, they can transmit it to you. Your money can't protect you. Um, and so we realize, oh, we are all really connected. And me having good healthcare and my neighbor not doesn't make me safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so th- that, even, that to me is one very basic insight. Another insight, uh, COVID doesn't care if you're Republican or Democrat, if you're American uh, or Canadian, you know, it, it suddenly realize, oh, we're all human beings. And we've talked already about doubt being a human problem. And we realize th- these are human realities. 
Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I think COVID has taught the church is that the church was capable of innovation and and was capable of rapid and radical change when necessity struck that they didn't think they were. Um, so you have all these people who never would have willingly consented to doing church online, and now they do it online. Um, well, uh, when we start meeting again in person, uh, the fact is the online world isn't going to go away. So whatever we do going forward, I think is going to be a hybrid. I think it's going to be very unwise congregations that suddenly stop doing their online work and only uh, do in-person work once, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, once the disease has sort of run its course. Um, and that, that insight that we are capable of rapid and radical change is a pretty important insight. And then it's going to make us ask other questions. And in fact, Josh, again, it's something you podcasters are, are learning that sometimes a community becomes even more valuable when it's a community that sends you, that gives you information and gives you a chance to think about things that are given, not given a chance to think about anywhere else. Um, and that things like buildings and choirs and all those other things aren't, they're beautiful and I'm all for them, but they aren't the point. And uh, so those would be a couple of things that come to, to my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, coming back to the, you know, that passage you quoted from Galatians 5, 6, where Paul says, all of the things that we have religious arguments about don't matter at all. They mean absolutely nothing. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. And we know from what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, how, how high his opinion is of the primacy of love. If our churches could say, the real reason we exist is the formation of loving people. And we were to say everything else we could change, whether we meet in person, whether we meet online, whether we sing, whether we don't sing, all those things become secondary. How do we help people become the most loving version of themselves that they can be? Mm-hmm. My gosh, our, the future of the next 30 years could be so exciting. Absolutely. Yeah, it'd be beautiful. And that's, <laughs> I mean, that's that's the million, the million dollar question that, you know what I what I was thinking that the personal bit is like okay so hypothetically if you knew a 26 year old who was a high school and young adult pastor and they found themselves uh, in working in a church environment um, that most I mean just to be you know uh, to use a generalization churches most of the time tend to be uh, within stage one or stage two yeah. um, and I would say where I'm at is definitely a stage two kind of place. Um, and not only that overall, but people on staff are, are within different places. Yes. Um, and then I find myself in a different place. Yeah. What advice might you give to somebody hypothetically finding themselves <laughs> yeah. in that situation um, who does want to bring about the most amount of good yeah. and love, um, yeah. but is having a hard time doing so? Yeah. Well, look, I, uh, the, the, I mean, the biggest thing I'd say, uh, Josh, is to just keep growing and to keep growing in the awareness that the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. And so to keep growing in love and to love everybody where they are. So if a person is in stage one, 
love them as a stage one person, understand mm-hmm. they have work to do. Um, understand that you will, that one of your jobs is to say things that make them uncomfortable from time to time, because that's the only way that they'll ever be stretched into stage two. And understand they probably won't jump from one to four in one jump, that they're going to have to spend some time in each of the stages. And um, so there's a love. And of course, love is patient, is what Paul said. So patience for people to be where they are and grow at the pace where they can grow. Second thing I'd say is we need to be aware that religious organizations like political organizations and other kinds Mm -hmm. of organizations, they have a center of gravity. Mm -hmm. And if the center of, and and in some ways what's been happening in evangelical Christianity in the last few decades is we had a lot of stage one people move into stage two and some even move into stage three. And then the stage one people decided to have a purge and they, they decide to, kick out anybody who's not in stage two or stage three. And one of the things we could really do is help church leaders to realize that, uh, that it, they are at great risk of having stage one people uh, dis- disrupt their whole community unless they make it clear that they're not about a destination, like you said earlier, they're about a journey. And uh, if they can make that absolutely clear, this, that's the rules of the game in this congregation, you know, um, they can make it clear enough that stage one people can understand it. Those stage one people will either leave or they'll be some of the best members of a congregation that they could be because at least they understand what the rules are and they kind of want to go by the rules. Now, the problem for them is going to be when uh, the rules of their church are in conflict with the rules of Fox News or when the rules of their church are in conflict with the rules of the Christian radio station, um, you know, and, and, and then they're going to deal with some struggle. Guess what? That's going to push them into stage two. <laughs> uh, and that's going to help them grow. So as long as we can get comfortable with the fact that people go through stages and it's difficult and there's chaos and it's not your fault. That's one of the things I would also say. It's not your fault when these troubles arise. Your job is to be loving, patient. When you make mistakes, which you will, to admit it, to keep learning, to keep that humility we talked about, and then just keep expressing love. That's that's what counts. Well, thank you so much for that, Brian. Uh, I appreciate it. And I've really enjoyed this conversation today and, and appreciated your time. Um, and I'm super excited now that I know that uh, you're working on that, that little companion book. I'm excited about that because that's that's a question that I've asked myself. Uh, and so I'm excited for that. And perhaps we can have another conversation someday in the future. <laughs> I look forward to that. I look forward to that, man. We'll keep up the good work. And uh, we I know we both send our love and prayers for uh, Kaylin and Marty and uh, blessings to your church and to this good work on this, this uh, podcast. And thanks for your excellent questions and good leadership. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brian. And just real quick before you go, where where can people find you so that they can get connected with uh, all the wonderful stuff that you're doing? Because it's helped me so much. I want I wanted to help others as well. Oh, thanks. It's brianmclaren.net, B R I A N M C L A R E N dot net, and uh, they can find my Twitter and Facebook, all those connections if they, if they're interested in other resources that I have. Wonderful. Sounds good. I'll be sure to uh, to link those things in the show notes. 
Sweet. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much, Brian. And listeners, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. And as uh, as always, go Caps. Peace and love, guys. Bye.